Welcome to Backyard Oasis, a podcast designed by and for older adults living in the beautiful Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts and produced in the tech studios at Greenfield Community College in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Backyard Oasis reaches out to older adults who seek knowledge to help them live more thoughtfully, healthily, and happily who hope to inspire others with their ideas and who serve their communities in the interest of the greater good. We hope you join us frequently in our pleasant backyard oasis for wide-ranging conversations with a diversity of people who are growing older and want to talk about it. I'm Christine Copeland, a member of the Oasis podcast team, and I'm here today to interview Russell Powell, a friend, and one of the principals of Brook Hollow Press. Brook Hollow Press publishes quality books by and about New England, especially the Connecticut River watershed, with an emphasis on environmentalism and the arts. Today we're going to talk about a subject that I'm guessing will be of strong interest to a lot of our Oasis listeners, the memoir. Why? Because a lot of us are of a certain age, what the Europeans call the third age, and we're reflecting back on our lives. But first, Russ, why don't you briefly tell us about Brook Hollow Press and how it came to be? Sure. Um, Brook Hollow Press really was predated by a magazine I published in 2005 to seven called New England Watershed. And it was organized around the uh, I-91 corridor and the Connecticut River here in western New England. And the idea was that we need to know ourselves before we can know others. And when you think about a region like New England that includes uh, New Canaan, Connecticut, and Aroostook, Maine, and yet we call ourselves New Englanders, I think it's uh, important that we dig down a little deep and see what we have in common. Some of it is uh, geographical, some of it is historical, and some of it is cultural. But before we can begin to relate to other parts of the country, uh, we need to know ourselves. And publishing magazines, or in this case, books, is a way to do that. So most of your authors are from New England? Yes. Or have uh, some history here? Everyone on our author list right now is from New England, with one exception, a painter uh, from Pennsylvania who has taught extensively in New England and treats rural themes that are recognizable to us here. The rest of us are from Western New England, and we also tend to be multimedia. We're not just writers, we're photographers and painters and video producers. So while we call ourselves a book publisher, we have the capacity to branch out and um, produce work in a number of media. Mm -hmm. Exciting. So would you say that um, many of your authors are of a certain age? the third age that I was referring to? Yes. We really don't uh, specialize in any genre. We do have a memoir in the works right now, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But yes, we are all uh, of a a senior age (laughs) to date. That's not to say that we're limited to that. We're certainly open to proposals by people of all ages. But um, on our current author list, everybody is... uh, 
we'll say 50 plus. <laughs> a young 50. Um, so Russell, when my mom was in her 80s, I helped her write a memoir, which was then printed by Paradise Copies, um, sort of in the, the format of an Apple book, you know, horizontal book. And it wasn't very long. It was just 25 pages, but it had a lot of her... Um, you know, pictures from childhood that she dug out. And my siblings and their kids just loved it. It was a big hit in the family. And what was amazing to all of us were all the stories that we had never heard. Um, so I've noticed that a number of the books in Brooke Hall of Press are memoirs, as you were saying. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about the memoir as a genre? Yeah, in this day and age, because of the technology, Anybody can make a book, which is a fabulous opportunity. But when you're thinking about memoirs, there are really two kinds. One is the type you described with your mom. It's not intended for a larger audience. It's a way to preserve family history, and uh, it can include whatever you want. The kind of memoir that we're choosing to publish at Brook Hollow Press are pieces that are intended for a general audience. So... Uh, there's a, a vetting. We have an editorial board that has to review each proposal. So we're looking for certain quality of the writing and artwork, if there is any. But also uh, something that has meaning beyond the stories themselves, something that will resonate for a general reader who may not know the person who has written the book. Can you talk a little bit more about that? When, when you say it has meaning beyond the stories, what are you talking about? What, what sort of meaning? It is really going to depend on the individual. The memoir we're working on now is written by a woman in her 80s from Connecticut. And uh, she tells stories about her family in ways that make you think about your own life. She talks about the experience of being a mother. She talks about being a saleswoman in the 70s and 80s and some of the sexism that she encountered. She is able to impart her personality. She's a loud, by her own admission, <laughs> she's even calling it loud mouth. <laughs> but it, it gives you an insight into her character in uh, a way that really goes beyond uh, the family. When you read this memoir, you will know Judy Podell and um, in, in a different way than you might with uh, a piece that's, say, about my uncle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a, a, I have a, I wouldn't call it a prejudice against memoirs. I did a memoir with my mother. But I have, I guess I have a sort of a stereotypical view that, that is born of my, you know, my youth in the 70s and the 80s, I was part of an intentional community, I read Alan Watts, you know, I did a little bit of Zen sitting, and uh, so part of me thinks, why are we reinforcing our egos by writing memoirs? You know, there, there are almost 8 billion people on the planet. Who cares about my puny life? And <laughs> so can you, can you speak to that? Yeah, like I mean, the motivation. I, have, I share some of that ambivalence. I think some of this emanates from the, the kind of selfie culture that we live in now. There is a lot more attention on the self and uh, uh, narcissistic public figures. And uh, I think it kind of encourages people to think of themselves in a different way. And when you combine that with the technology where you actually can make a book, uh, I think it's, it's a very fulfilling experience for a lot of people. But... 
aside from just the ego issue, I think in the best cases, writing a memoir can help you make sense of your life. If uh, many of us have gone in very nonlinear ways, we have ended up at our age not really sure how we got here or what it all means. And a memoir is an opportunity to kind of um, review the events of your life and see if you can assign some coherency or order that maybe wasn't uh, visible to you before. So that's one very uh, positive way to think about uh, uh, about a memoir. Another piece, and you know, maybe this is ego, but uh, I think one of the reasons that there's interest in memoir is it's a way to outlive our mortality. <laughs> um, it goes back to that existential question. Why are we here? What is the meaning of this? And uh, if you've got something in print that is going to be here after you, you die, uh, it's one way of uh, preserving something of yourself for the next generation. <laughs> Whether that's limited to your family or a broader audience, it's, um, it's keeping your persona uh, in the world, your ideas, your values. So I think that that's the appeal for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I mean, when we're talking about our age, a memoir can also mitigate against memory loss. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Know. It was a great exercise for my mother, for both of us. It was a wonderful way for us to be together. Yeah. For her to, you know, I did the typing, of course, and she just recounted her life. So um, that was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, memory, we know, is tricky. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you have to guard against in a memoir is sugarcoating everything mm -hmm. that... One of the reasons that we decided to work with Judy Padell in Connecticut is she is painstakingly honest. She describes her foibles, and she's not afraid to put herself in a bad light if it's the truth, if it is telling a meaningful story about her experience. I think some of us have a tendency to want to just think of ourselves in the best terms. And um, obviously, if you're writing a memoir, you can do it any way you want. But if, from Brook Hollow Press's perspective, we're looking for something that is, uh, that has that sense of honesty and authenticity that um, maybe goes beyond the, the public relations version. You know, on this note, when we were talking about this a little while ago, you mentioned that, well, well you wrote that wonderful piece that's on your website about being a mailman. I don't know how old you milkman. were. A milkman, <laughs> not a mailman, a milkman, sorry. I knew it was a milkman, I just... Uh, slip of the tongue. Um, so you, you wrote that wonderful piece about being a milkman, and beyond just uh, reading about what it was like to be a milkman, I think that there was sort of an unspoken message to young men in your life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, I have three stepsons, and uh, I uh, am previously a, a coach of uh, runners and softball players. And, um, and I did, when I wrote that piece, I did find that uh, I was in a way speaking to younger people, younger men. And part of it was to point out that it's okay to take a job that you may not have for 30 years. And that sometimes uh, I think people put too much pressure on that first job that it will define them in some way. And I think that uh, for me, it's been a healthier approach to be open to other things, other experiences. And 
even though I was a milkman for 14 months, it was a seminal experience. The other reason I chose to write about that is to preserve something of that era. Um, we don't have milkmen anymore, and yet most of the people from my generation in this part of the world grew up with a milkman, and many also had a bread man. <laughs> so um, I wanted to capture some of that flavor before it's altogether gone. Well, it is a wonderful piece, and I encourage our listeners to go and, and find find it if they can. We'll, we'll leave some information about where to read that. Um, so uh, when I was thinking about memoirs, I actually looked up famous memoirs. And what I found, there, I mean, there were some memoirs, but I found a lot of biographies. Mm-hmm. And that's generally when we're, when we're learning about, um, you know, someone from the past. It's, it's a biography. Do you have any famous, I mean, do you have any favorite memoirs that you've read? And, um, and, and how would you distinguish You know, the first one that popped into my head as you asked that question is The Outermost House. And uh, it really uh, describes a year in uh, a shack in the Cape Cod Dunes. I can't think of the author right now. Um, (laughs) We'll put that in the notes as well. I read it about every 10 years. It's just a wonderful piece. Mm -hmm. And um, partly it's because it does take you to a specific point in time in this person's life in a way that you can, that I can extrapolate and relate to my own experience about resourcefulness and uh, dealing with the elements, being immersed in the natural world. All of those things have uh, great appeal to me. And um, Can you tell our listeners what the Outermost House is? It was a, it was a, a little more sophisticated than a shack, but kind of like a shack in the Cape Cod dunes. There are shacks still in the Provincetown and Truro area, and uh, I actually produced a video about those shacks called Shack Time, and there are 18 of them scattered over a five-mile stretch. They are a way to experience solitude in the modern world that is increasingly hard to find. And... uh, through a lottery system managed through the Cape Cod National Seashore, it's possible to get a week out in a shack still in 2023. So um, The Outermost House was written, I want to say, in the 30s or 40s, and that shack no longer exists, but um, it was a deliberate experience, not unlike Thoreau's Walden, of uh, someone going out and uh, creating a kind of environmental... I won't say hardship, but uh, being out in the elements and then writing about what that what that does to the powers of observation and the appreciation of small things, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, the simplicity yeah. It reduces your life to a much more uh, simple s- simplicity in terms of what you have and yeah. the distractions and that sort of thing. A lot of young people are are um, taking time from the cities and staying in small not shacks, but cabins in the woods. Yeah. Now I see that, you know, an Airbnb just, and turning off, turning yeah. off their phones and, you know, just disconnecting from the, the technological world. But someone growing up in the city is going to have an altogether different experience. And that's the yeah. fun of memoirs is you can mm-hmm. get into the experience of someone else. I think the other piece that comes into play when you're thinking about publishing through uh, some an imprint like Brook Hollow Press versus uh, just doing it on your own, 
is uh, storytelling. And uh, I think what makes a memoir successful is uh, the ability to tell this information in story form so that it's interesting to read just as a reader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the uh, memoirs that are just done for a family, they tend to work from a genealogical basis. Uh, there may be incidents described in it, but it's not part of a, a narrative thread that makes for a coherent book. Um, I kind of like to talk a little bit about voice and how you counsel people about voice, because uh, I've helped some people start their memoirs, and I, um, I, I'm not really an editor. The type of interviewing that I've done has always been for, you know, um, newspaper articles, that sort of thing, and so I've retained people's sort of voice because I've recorded it, <laughs> and I just had to clean up their voice. But there's a difference for me in in a person's voice, quote unquote, and sometimes the way they write, which is much more formal. Mm-hmm. I personally prefer that voice. How do you feel about that? And if you feel the same way, how do you deal with it when someone um, may write differently than they communicate in yeah. other ways. Well, you've done a nice job of summarizing it. I say to people, write the way you speak. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a tendency, uh, I think we can be intimidated sometimes by the written page and feel that it has to be something other than the way we talk. But I think for the success of a book, it needs to be accessible, interesting, readable, understandable. And uh, if it's done in the language of the writer, it's going to leave a much deeper impression. That's what I was saying about Judy Padel. You mm-hmm. know her personality. It's not just the stories, but through her writing style, it sounds very much like her speech. Uh-huh. Um, you know who she is at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Not just the details, but you know her. Mm-hmm. My guess is that there are probably people out there who want to write a memoir and don't know how to start. So uh, how, how would you advise them by just telling those individual stories and then compiling them? Or what would you... I would break it down into components. If you start the process by thinking, oh, I've got to write 80 years or 60 years of my life, that can be intimidating and that can uh, even keep you from getting started. So my advice is to take one story, just one incident that maybe pops up as you're taking a walk or has some special meaning for you, and just try and write that one story. It doesn't have to be linear at this point. If you get 20 or 30 of these essays together, and you say, well, I've got enough material for a book here, but um, I think that's a far better approach to build up to it that way than to set yourself a goal of I'm writing a book and then feeling disappointed in yourself if it doesn't all come together at once. So that's my suggestion is start small. Start with one story get it just the way you want, and take it from there. It's how I approach my gardens. <laughs> I don't worry about the whole yard. I worry about one section and making that perfect. And then I go on to the next one. And pretty soon, they all fit together. Well, this is a lovely segue back to Brook Hollow, because I know that you've published uh, books about gardening. You've published books about um, uh, about uh, New England apple orchards and the, um, you know, the farmers who run them. 
that, that have wonderful stories in them. So wh why don't we talk a little bit more? Um, well, first of all, coming back to Brook Hollow, before we talk about gardens and apples, um, you might have, as a result of this podcast, you might have people submitting mm -hmm. uh, ideas for either memoirs or other types of books. So um, can you talk a little bit about your process and, um, you know, how that would happen for them? And then we'll go back to some of your books in yes. Brook Hollow, sure. Brook Hollow Press. One of the things we're trying to do with Brook Hollow Press is distinguish a book not by genre, but by quality. That if it says Brook Hollow Press, it's going to be of a certain quality. And the reason for that is we have an editorial team that reviews every proposal, and we have to have a majority of the team to vote to move forward with it. Uh, Jonathan Wright, the builder from Northampton, who's also a poet and photographer, is part of that group. Uh, I've recently recruited you for that group. Um, Bar Weeks, who's an outstanding copy editor and grammarian. She is part of the group. So we really have, um, we have an intake process where the uh, proposal is submitted, we review it, and if we go forward, there are a couple of fees involved. This is not for free. Uh, you know, even if you do the 25-page version through Paradise Copies, there is a cost involved. In our case, uh, most of what we offer is, I would describe, fee for service. We do have what I would call a $500 editorial fee, which means that you get me or someone like me through the entire process who will work with you and uh, edit your book and give you feedback on how it's coming, and then work on the logistical details, getting the ISBN numbers and all that stuff, and coordinating with the graphic designer. The designer uh, is also roughly around $500. He works on an hourly basis, so it might be less or more depending on the number of pages and the artwork and how fast it has to be done. But basically, you're looking at around $1,000 to get the book done through Brook Hollow Press. Um, at that point, all our books are published through what's called uh, uh, Publish on Demand, books on demand, so there is no warehouse full of our books. We provide a file to the printer, and if a book is ordered through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, the printer produces the book and sends it out, and, uh, and that's the end of the story from our point of view. If there's a typo in the first version, we just go in and correct the file, and all future copies are fixed. So that's kind of how the process works. We, we have a whole stable of uh, very seasoned professional people who can provide additional support if it's required. But the basics are this editorial fee and then whatever it costs to design the book. So your authors are, um, are paying for those services, those editorial services, and then they're also paying for the printing of the book, but the printing is just as people are requesting the book. It's yes. printing on demand. But they are responsible for the printing, and then they enjoy whatever royalty comes of that after, yes. the, after the printing of the book is, is paid for. And Brook Hollow Press, we also do some promotion. One of our uh, complaints with traditional publishers, those of us who have uh, published books with uh, traditional publishers, is that unless you're already a well-known name, they do very little to help promote your book. So you end up having to do it anyway. So we might as well control our product and make sure it's the book we want to do. Mm. 
Having said that, we have a nice website where every one of our authors gets their own uh, listing and photograph and a link to their websites. We have a Facebook page. We're beginning to do some events. So uh, it's uh, modest in a way, but we're there to help our authors sell their books, not just print them. Mm -hmm. And very local. Yes. yes. Homegrown. Homegrown. Um, so um, so let's, let's just close by talking a little bit more about your books at Brook Hollow. So you've published a number of books. Some of them have been actually produced by a, a standard house, publishing house, and some of them you've done in the way that you just described, print on demand, self-published. Um, um, which is... which? Do you have a favorite? <laughs> a favorite book? Yeah, that you produced. Uh, that's a good I question. have a favorite of one of your books. <laughs> we can talk about that after. Well, the, the first two that come to mind are the two Apple books. Mm -hmm. One was called America's Apple. That's the first one. It was published through Brook Hollow Press. And uh, it looks at the entire U.S. And I visited orchards in Washington State and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Virginia and, of course, all of New England and New York State. And it really tells about uh, how apples are grown and sold, mostly by the people who grow and sell them. And uh, the second book was done through a traditional publisher, Norton, um, called Apples of New England. And that's really a, a resource. It's a regional history and a guide with more than 200 photos and descriptions of varieties that are grown in New England, discovered in New England, or sold in New England. So I would say that those are, uh, those are probably my favorites. I'm a New Englander. I've always lived in New England, central Massachusetts was where I'm from originally. I grew up among apple orchards, and uh, I am passionate about our landscape, and uh, apples is one way to talk about that. Wonderful. Well, um, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming in, Russell, and... Uh, I, I do have to say to all of our listeners that um, America's Apple was probably my favorite of your books as well, and because of the stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, hopefully you'll be able to gather some more of those stories of these stalwart New Englanders um, in the future. <laughs> um, for our listeners, uh, in case any of you would like to um, go to some of these websites, Brook Hollow is Brook Hollow Press. Org. Brook as in Brook. <laughs> um, there's a Brook Hollow in Hatfield, right? Yes. Yeah. And then Russell, RussellPowell.net. R-U-S-S-E-L-L-P-O-W-E-L-L.net. This concludes today's podcast. We're always looking for new ideas, so feel free to reach out to Judy Raper, Associate Dean of Community Engagement at Greenfield Community College at 413-775-1819 if you have an idea you'd love to share. Special thanks to the creators of Backyard Oasis, Denise Schwartz, Chad Fuller, Dennis Lee, and Christine Copeland. Have a great day.